0: Do me a favor, track down a Bible if you can, and get with me to Matthew chapter three. Matthew chapter three, and we're going to look at uh, the end of chapter three and the beginning of Matthew chapter four. So we'll go Matthew three thirteen all the way through four eleven. I'm going to read the events, and then we'll pray, and we will get right to work. Matthew 3, starting in verse 13. Then Jesus came from Galilee to the Jordan to be baptized by John. But John tried to deter him, saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? Jesus replied, Let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water at that moment, heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. And a voice from heaven said, This is my Son, whom I love. With him I am well pleased. Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the, de- into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. After fasting 40 days and 40 nights, he was hungry. The tempter came to him and said, If you are the Son of God... Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that as we've opened your word together, that you would speak to each of us. We pray, God, that you, by your spirit, would speak over us and help us to know what you have done for us. And so, Lord, we just commit this time to you and ask that it would be a blessing for your people. And we pray this all in the precious name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. So, we've got here two events, but one main point. Two narratives of different situations that happened in the life and ministry of Jesus Christ, but they both really communicate this one point. They're really answering the question who is this man, Jesus of Nazareth? These two stories, when taken together, <clears throat> help us to see who Christ is and what he has come to do. And that is a very significant thing for us to consider. One of the guys who has been uh, maybe maybe one of the most influential living individuals who shaped the way that I preach is a guy by the name of Mike Bullmore. He was the pr- professor of preaching at Trinity for a number of years before uh, he he went on to launch a church where he's the lead pastor and continues to serve to this day. But he taught preaching at Trinity before my time. Before my time there. Um, but his influence is still felt. And, and I've had the privilege of listening to his lectures on preaching, and um, you know he's in Kenosha, Wisconsin, which is not far away, so I've had the pleasure of sitting down with him and, and talking about life and ministry. Um, but he, he, he talks about you know, one of the first classes he would give to young, aspiring preachers, and he would help them to think through the task of the preaching moment. He'd say, he'd say things like this, in the ideal sermon... the the point of the passage should be the point of the sermon. In other words, what God is intending to communicate in whatever portion of Scripture you're looking at actually should be the point of the message, right? That makes sense, does it not? That the authority then would not be with the preacher, but it would be with the Word of God. And so he asked the students to think through what is God's intent in a certain passage. And one of the assignments he would give is, uh, he would ask them to preach on Matthew chapter 4, what we're looking at today. And he would say to the students, okay, what, why is this here? Why did God give us Matthew chapters 3 and 4 in the way that he did? What is God seeking to accomplish here? And then he'd ask this kind of question. He'd say, how many of you have heard sermons that sounded like this? Here are three strategies for dealing with temptation. Point number one, fast and pray. Jesus fasted and prayed. If you do that, you'll be better situated to deal with temptation. Point number two, cite scripture when tempted. Use scripture to combat temptation. Jesus did that, you should do that. Point number three, be more like Jesus. When he was tempted, he was successful. You should try to be more like him. How many of you, he would say to his students, have heard Sermons like that, and a lot of hands would go up. Now, how many of you have heard sermons like that? How many, of us have heard, how many of us have preached those kinds of sermons? Here are some strategies for dealing with temptation, but is that really the point? Is that why God gave us these two chapters? What is God trying to accomplish here? Now, all the stuff that I just illustrated is true. It's all good. We should pray. We should fast. We should memorize scripture. We should try to be more like Jesus, but is that why this is here? I would say, not entirely. There's there's more for us here than just that. And so with our time together, I'd like to try to answer that question. Why did God put this here for us? So let's look at these two different events and see if we can't unearth this one main point. Event number one is the baptism of Jesus Christ. And we find here some features. I'm gonna pick them up and describe them so that we see them kind of traveling through both of these different events. But the first thing I notice is this humility. There is humility on display. It flows in a couple different directions. First, it comes from John, but then it's reciprocated that Jesus himself is humble as well. Jesus came to be baptized. Look at verse 14. But John tried to deter him saying, I need to be baptized by you, and do you come to me? He's basically saying, this doesn't feel right. I know who you are. And, and if we're being honest here, I should probably be the one who's going under the waters of baptism. You ought to be performing your ministry on me. How, how on earth should I feel comfortable with this? I'm trying to deter you. And so there's a humility there. But there's also a humility on the part of Jesus to say, no, this is right. This is appropriate. And he explains that in just a minute. But he is showing this humble posture that's saying, I will do whatever is necessary to save my people, I will do whatever <clears throat> God wants me to do. Grant Osborne puts it like this He says, By submitting to John's baptism, Jesus begins his messianic work by identifying with the human need and providing the means by which it can be accomplished. Jesus, by getting baptized, is saying, I understand the human condition, I understand the need for repentance. I understand the need for salvation, and I will do whatever is required to see to it that people have that opportunity. I was thinking of an an analogy, and it's a very poor one, so uh, be patient with me. But imagine if you were going to get a surgery, and on the morning of the surgery, you show up for the pre-op check-in and all that stuff, and you're sitting there in the waiting room, and you look over, and you see your surgeon, and he is... um, He's taking the trash out. He's, t- he's switching out the garbage bags. One's full. He's putting in an empty one. And you go, hey, doc, good morning. What's, what's up today? What are you up to? And he's, he says, look, I, I just want to make sure that everything is done. I want to make sure that everything is ready for today. And you go, huh, I didn't think you would do that sort of thing. Now, again, this is a really poor analogy. I'm not saying your baptism's trash or anything like that. I'm I'm trying to make the point that Jesus was humble enough to say, I will do whatever. I will do everything that is necessary. And in fact, the the second thing I want to point out here is part of what is necessary is this idea of righteousness. Look at verse 15. Jesus replied, let it be so now. It is proper for us to do this, to fulfill all righteousness. Then John consented. Jesus makes it very explicit. Part of what he's doing here is he is doing everything that is required of God. He is doing everything right. He is willing to take whatever steps are necessary. You could say he didn't need to repent. He didn't need to to go through these motions. But what he's doing is he's committing himself entirely to doing the Father's will. And he's doing everything necessary to perform salvation for humanity. So he is after this reality of righteousness. We'll see that travel through both narratives. Then we also see here in the baptism this Trinitarian confirmation. Trinity is the word that we use to describe God. God is one, but God is also three at the same time. God is the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. And here at the baptism, we see this reality on display that God is communicating to us the Trinity and the significance of who Jesus is in the Trinity. So you have the Holy Spirit present here in verse 16. As soon as Jesus was baptized, he went up out of the water, and at that moment heaven was opened, and he saw the Spirit of God descending like a dove and alighting on him. The Spirit of God is present and is manifesting himself, looking like a dove, but, f- but coming down and resting on the person of Jesus of Nazareth. There's this there's this confirmation then on the part of the spirit that this is the son of God on open display. The Father also speaks. Look at verse 17. A voice from heaven now said, "This is my son whom I love with him I'm well pleased." God the Father now is communicating. This is no ordinary dude. This is my son. This is my son that I love, and with him, I am well pleased. Harrison, my boy, uh, just this week, he was asking me, Dad, are you going to talk about me at church? I said, I don't don't know. You know, I don't have plans to yet. Is there something that you're thinking about? And he's like, well, I just think you always talk about Reese. And he's like keeping tabs, and he wants to hear his dad speak over him, stories about him. I think that's a part of the human experience. We really do want our fathers to say, this is my son with whom I'm well pleased. This is my son whom I love. And Jesus has that experience in this moment. God the Father is speaking over him saying, take note here because this, this is my child. This is my son, my beloved. With him, I am well pleased. And so that reality then is, the, the, is confirmed here in this baptism. God is saying this Jesus of Nazareth is the Son of God, and that term will carry over. What does Satan say repeatedly in chapter 4? If you are the Son of God, if you're really the Son of God, then, and he fills in these different temptations, this marker then is very important. It becomes a key status, as Grant Osborne says, for the whole temptation narrative. But this is telling us that Jesus is the son of God. And that's not like a new idea. It's not like they heard that and they thought, oh, I didn't know God had a son. It's actually a concept that's been traveling through the entire Bible. God speaks of different sons of his. One of them is the nation Israel. Israel is my son a whole people group becomes his child. But Psalm 2 is probably the place where it's most clear. Psalm 2 is a coronation psalm where it's saying, God is speaking and he's saying, the nations rage, but I am establishing my son. And I laugh at the nations as they try to mock me and my intentions. I have a son who I am establishing permanently and everyone will be accountable to him he will judge the earth. Everyone will have this reference point of this son. And now here's what is happening at this baptism. All of that is coming true. God is saying, this is that son. This man, Jesus of Nazareth, is no ordinary man. He is the son of God. Event number two is the temptation, and it is a testing. Look at verse One of chapter four, it says, Then Jesus was led by the Spirit into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. This is not coincidental. This is providential. God is leading Jesus by the Spirit into the wilderness for the sake of testing. He's going to be tempted by the devil. There's that purpose clause in order to be tempted by the devil. So here we have Jesus going into this experience coordinated by God himself. What's the point? Jesus is going to prove himself faithful. He's being tested and he will come out on the other side successful, but he is doing this as a testing that God is coordinating. He's identifying with the human experience. So when the writer to the Hebrews describes and reflects on this event, what does he say? We'll put it up on the screen. It says, we do not have a high priest who is unable to empathize with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet he did not sin. Jesus went through the desert wilderness. He was tempted in every way like us, but here's the the key point to be made. He did not sin. In other words, he fulfilled all righteousness, Picking up that idea from the baptism, we find out that Jesus, by going through this testing and by being effective and obedient in it, he is fulfilling all righteousness. Now, let's just think about this for a moment so you see that the points that I'm trying to make are not just you know, made up, but let's think about this. When was another time when the devil tempted someone? When was another time in the Bible where the devil was there and he was tempting people? Right at the front end of the Bible. It's the garden. It's Adam and Eve. How did they do? Uh, not so great. Right? They failed. There was a temptation there. The devil enticed them. They they took that enticement. They ran with it. They disobeyed God. And here we have this parallel experience where Jesus is being tested by the devil, but he is faithful. All right, when is let's ask another question. When was another time in the Bible when someone went through the desert wilderness? for a designated period of 40-something? When was another time in the Bible where another group went through the desert wilderness for a period of 40? Jesus goes through the desert wilderness. He fasts and prays for 40 days. Does that call to mind any other event in the Bible? Well, Israel went through the desert wilderness for 40 years. Now, how did that go for them? How did they do with their testing? Again, not great. They failed in all these different ways. Now, here's what Jesus is going to do here in this event of the temptation, and, and I hope that you see it here. When he's tempted, he quotes from the Bible at every temptation, but he's actually pulling all of these quotes from one spot in the Bible. It's Deuteronomy chapter six through eight. He's pulling from the scriptures that are talking about the Israelites going through the desert wilderness and failing. And he's now taking that scripture and using it to show us where Israel failed, I will not. Where Adam failed, I will not. Let's look at the temptations one at a time. There's provision, protection, and power. The temptation of provision, the temptation of protection, and the temptation of power. The temptation of provision is the question, will God give us what we need? Will he be able to give us what we need when we go through the desert wilderness? So it's in the realm of food and sustenance. So in verse three, the tempter came to Jesus and said, if you are the son of God, tell these stones to become bread. You've been fasting for 40 days, you're starving, you're hungry, your, your belly hurts. You, if you're the son of God, use your power, use your authority, use your might To turn these rocks into a hot meal. If you are the Son of God, tell these stones to become bread. Here's the question Do you trust God's provision? Because what you could do right now is you could take matters into your own hands and you could make bread yourself. Let's think briefly about how the Israelites did when they were fed by God. As they were in the desert wilderness, they would wake up every morning. And they would go out of their tents and they would look on the ground. And sure enough, God had rained down bread from heaven. So the desert wilderness was covered in bread and they were instructed, get enough for the day. Here's your daily provision. Here's your literal daily bread. Gather enough for the entire day. And that was the instruction that they were given and they were eating and they had this provision from God. And what did they do? Numbers chapter 11, they began to grumble. They would say things like this. We remember, we're so tired of this bread, but we remember when we were in Egypt, the hot meals that we would have. Onions and melons and leeks and all this different flavor and our mouths are watering, thinking about it. But God just gives us this stupid bread every day and we're tired of it. Can't God do us one better? Can't he give us meat? I mean, what did he do? He brought us out in the desert wilderness to just eat this bread. They grumbled. They grumbled. And so God said, okay, you want meat? I'll give you meat. And he actually sent this swarm of quail to come in and just kind of wipe out because it's coming in at knee level. And then the ground is covered with poultry and they're eating the, the, the quail meat and they're excited about it. But it tells us that while the meat was still in their teeth, God's anger burned against them. They were tempted with God's ability to provide for them and they failed. They looked at God's provision and they thought that is not good enough. Does that sound familiar to us? We grumble about God's ability to care for us. God, how can I trust you? You don't look after me. Look at my my income. Look at what's going on in the world right now. Look at the economy. What if my taxes go up, God? I don't know if I can be faithful to you because I'm not sure you're really on my side providing for me. We grumble, just like the Israelites were cut from the same cloth. But here's what Jesus says. When he was tempted in the realm of provision, here's how he replies. Verse four, Jesus answered, it is written, man shall not live on bread alone, but on every word that comes from the mouth of God. He says, look, at the end of the day, I trust God because he is providing for me. And the greatest thing that he's giving me is not bread. The greatest thing that he gives me is his will. The greatest thing he gives me is his voice. I don't live on bread alone, but on every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. Later on in his ministry, he'll say it like this. My food is to do the will of him who sent me. What what I draw strength from and sustenance from is God's ability to speak over me. He's faithful. Temptation number two comes in the realm of protection. Will God look after us? Will he care for us? Will he protect us from harm? So the devil comes to him again in verses five and six, and he took him to the holy city and had him stand on the highest point of the temple. If you're the son of God, he said, throw yourself down for it is written, he will command his angels concerning you and they will lift you up in their hands so that you will not strike your foot against a stone. Look, God won't allow a scratch on you if you're really the son of God, there are scriptures that point to God's ability to protect you. You can jump off of this temple precipice right now and angels will swoop you up in the air. You won't even strike your foot on the ground. If you really are the son of God, know that God is going to look after you and prove it to yourself and everyone else. God is there to protect you. And he doesn't bite but the Israelites did. The Israelites, when they were tempted about God's ability to protect them, what did they do? They, they, they questioned God. In fact, in the thing that's quoted here in just a minute, Jesus will quote from Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 16, but it's actually a quote of another verse. So I know it's tricky. It kind of feels like Inception, but Jesus is quoting another place that's quoting another place. So let's look at that original place. It's Exodus chapter 17. In Exodus 17, the Israelites quarreled and they tested God. So there's kind of a a reversal. God is testing them in the desert wilderness. Well, now they're getting upset with God. They're testing him. And here's what they say. They say, is the lord among us or not if god is really for us look at us can we really claim that god is caring for us right now can we really claim that god has our best interest in mind is he really among us or not they they grumbled they complained and they questioned god and so jesus picking up deuteronomy 6:16 6, says it is also written do not put the Lord your God to the test. We're going through a moment where many of us can be concerned. Does God really care for his church? I hear a lot of grumbling about the future and what's going on and all these different things. And I hear a lot of anxiety and concern. And we just have to recognize that what we're doing is we are falling prey to temptation, thinking that we want God to do it in a, with the fast track. We want God's protection of us, but we want it to be very tangible and real. When in fact, God is caring for us, he is looking after us, and we need to be careful not to put the Lord to the test. So Jesus, on account number two, is faithful. He trusts God entirely. Temptation number three comes in the realm of power. Look at verses eight and nine. Again, the devil took him to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their splendor. "'All this I will give to you,' he said." if you will bow down and worship me. Jesus, look at this. This is the world. This is everything in the world, all the kingdoms, all their glory, and all of this can be yours on one little condition, idolatry. Not that big of a deal. All you have to do in this moment is worship me and you will have authority over all of this. It can all be yours. I'll give it right to you. Now, Jesus doesn't fall for this one either. In fact, in verse 10, he says to him, away from me, Satan, for it is written, worship the Lord your God and serve him only. There are a couple different ironies here that uh, I want to point out. First one is, Satan was telling him that if he jumps off the cliff, angels will minister to him. And what happens at the end here? Angels literally come and minister to him. Verse 11, then the devil left him, And angels came and attended him. What what Satan was promising would come true so quickly, God was willing to do if Jesus was faithful. But here's another irony. Satan is saying, look, all the glory and all the splendor of all the earth can be yours in this moment. All you have to do is just take this little shortcut. Commit, Commit idolatry, worship me, I'll grant you all authority right now. Well, Jesus doesn't do that. He has a better way to get to the same destination. He's going to fulfill all righteousness. He's going to be obedient to the point of death, but he will come out on the other side victorious. In fact, later on, Jesus will stand on a mountain. Satan takes him up to a mountain and says, look at all of this. But later on, Jesus will take his disciples up on a mountaintop, and it's the end of the book of Matthew, chapter 28, verse 18, and he stands there with his disciples and he says, all authority has been given to me. Satan wanted me to go the fast way to get to this, but it's still mine and I, I achieved it. All authority has been given to me. All authority in heaven and on earth is mine. Therefore, go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them and teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. See, Jesus was willing to do everything necessary for our salvation. He is not going to take a shortcut to get there. He is willing to be obedient to the point of death on the cross. That's what Philippians 2 says, that he would be obedient to the point of death on the cross, but God has exalted him and given him a name that is above every other name, and that at the name of Jesus Christ, every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that he is Lord. So Jesus goes through the desert wilderness, and he comes out faithful on the other side. So let's go back to the initial question that we asked. Why is this here for us? Why did God give us Matthew chapters 3 and 4? What does God want to accomplish here today? Well, sure, some of us could stand to get baptized. We can hear the baptism story and we can think to ourselves, I've never done that. I should do that. I should enter the waters of baptism. Jesus did that. I should too. Some of us should learn to fight temptation by citing scripture and having memory verses on hand and all of that is fine and well. But here's the main thing that I think we all ought to walk away with today. It sounds something like this. Be still and know that I am God. what what God is doing here in Matthew chapters 3 and 4 is he is showing us the Son and all his glory. He's saying that there is one who is faithful at every point, who is obedient to the point of death. And he fulfilled all righteousness, and if you trust in him, he will offer salvation. So, where Adam failed and Israel failed and you and I fail, Jesus does not fail. He fulfills all righteousness for us. We should trust in him for our salvation. We should believe on him for what he has done. Many of us are kind of you know, frantic right now, thinking, "How do I? what do I do right now? How do we engage in the world right now? How do I be faithful as a Christian right now? And God just wants to say, look at my son. Look at him. He did everything that we need. He's authorized now as the unique savior of the world. So worship him. Trust him. Live by faith in the son of God. And that will be enough. Let's pray. Lord, we ask right now that you would continue by your Spirit to show us the glory of the Son. Help us to believe that he went through the desert wilderness for us. He was tested like us in every way, yet he did not sin. And by his obedience and his righteousness, he produced our salvation. He is our salvation. So help us in this moment to call on him to place our faith in him, to experience worship and adoration for him because he is our savior. So Lord, we love him and we worship him. Amen, amen.